There are some truths in the Bible that whether you're a Christian or not, you likely know. So even if you're here today and you're not normally in a church on Sunday, first, we're really glad you've come. Or even if you don't know the Bible all that well and may not even describe yourself as a Christian, there are concepts, ideas, and I'm sure even verses that would sound familiar to you. For instance, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. You've probably heard before Mark 12, 31, where Jesus says, love your neighbor as, fill in the blank, yourself. Or one of the favorite ones to be quoted by people who aren't really high on Christianity is Matthew 7, 1. Usually it's cited in an older King James language. Judge not lest ye be judged, right? So the power of these ideas is not their novelty. In other words, they're significant not because they're new. In fact, just a little disclaimer, I'm probably not gonna say anything in today's message that will be an aha new thought for you. In fact, I'd like to argue the other way that what I'm going to suggest to you is that there are particular concepts in the Bible that never ever go old, grow old. They're, they're concepts that we need to keep understanding and keep applying, and in fact, if we think we've mastered them, then we probably don't understand the concept. For instance, take the idea of humility. If you left the sanctuary today and walked out of the atrium and ran into a friend and you asked them, hey, what are you studying this year? They're like, well, this year I'm studying peace because last year I studied humility and I've got that one down. <laughs> you would know that they probably don't understand the idea of humility because the more you understand about biblical humility, the more you realize how prideful you really are. So there's certain concepts that the more you understand them, the more you understand that you need to understand them. People who understand biblical humility never stop practicing it. Now that's just true not only in the Bible, it's just true about life in general. For instance, this week the nation mourned with the tragic death of Kobe Bryant, his daughter and seven others. And Kobe was relentless in his pursuit of improvement and always practicing. So he knew there were certain things he needed to do, and he just was relentless in doing them over and over and over. In fact, I read an article sometime this week that said that the janitor of his high school in Pennsylvania got so weary of opening the gym at four o'clock in the morning for him that he cut him his own key to the school gym. So this, this relentless pursuit of what should be obvious and not new is key to a lot of different areas of human life, but it's especially true when it comes to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. John 15 identifies some very fundamental and basic ideas of what it means to be a Christian. And so if you're a follower of Jesus today, you've repented of your sins, you've turned to Christ, you've invited him to be your Lord and Savior, this text is really like 101, basic Christianity. If you're not yet a Christian, what I'm, what I'm gonna to explain to you today is what Christians are supposed to be like, and I'm sure you know some bad ones. In fact, you're probably sitting next to a bad one. 
because we're all not, we haven't arrived yet. And so what I'm gonna share with you today is, is what Christians are supposed to be striving towards, God helping them, and this command and this idea, particularly around the concept of love, is something that every single one of us need to grow in. And in particular, we need to grow in it as it relates to some particular people. We'll talk about that. So last week I suggested to you that when Jesus says, I'm the true vine and you're the branches, that it essentially means this, that for followers of Jesus, your mindset needs to be, I can do nothing without Jesus. And I hope that was a little sticky for you, that when you got up on Monday or Tuesday, at least for a couple days this week, or maybe you're in a meeting, you thought, you know, nothing without Jesus, nothing without Jesus. So that's kind of the negative side. Let's talk about the positive side. In this text today, Jesus continues the idea of what it means for us to abide in him, but he applies it not in what we're not to do, but what we are to do. So instead of thinking it as nothing without Jesus, today I want you to think about it as this, everything like Jesus. So if last week was about nothing without him, this text is about everything to be like him. It means that Jesus is to so captivate the mind and hearts of God's people that we act and live and are like him in ways that are just supernatural and surprising. In fact, the glory of what it means to be a Christian is that you find yourself strangely and miraculously becoming more and more like Jesus. Someone says something negative and instead of responding the way you used to respond, you say words that are gracious. And then rather than looking at yourself going, nailed it, spiritual, A-grade Christian, you look at yourself and you're like, man, I can't believe that just happened. Like, that's incredible, Jesus is working in me. But the more you know about Jesus, the more enamored you are with him and the less enamored you are with yourself. So today we're gonna explore this concept of what it means to abide by loving one another. So first, it means that we are to love like Jesus. Abiding in Jesus has to translate into tangible action. Abiding in Jesus, the spiritual union with, with Christ that we talked about last week, is to be matched with tangible fruit, with real behaviors. So understand, Christians, being a follower of Jesus is not just a belief set. It is a belief set, but it's a belief set that works its, ways, its way into how you act, how you think, what you say, what you do. So in verses 12 to 17, Jesus is gonna tell us that followers of Jesus treat one another differently. And then next week you're gonna learn from verses 18 to 25 that the world hates people like this. It's crazy. That as the community of Christ becomes more and more like Jesus, it's prophetic to the world and the world hates that. And so Jesus is gonna warn these disciples, I'm the true vine, you're the branches, love one another and the world's gonna hate you. So he sets up what is to be their expectation. In verse 12, we find this command. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Go one page back in your Bible to chapter 13 in verses 34 and 35. This command to love one another is not a new command in terms of hearing it 
for the first time in the book of John, because we heard it in verse 34 when Jesus had finished washing the disciples' feet. Look at verse 34, he says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. We'll talk about this more in a moment, but there's this connection between their relationships with one another and how they have been loved by Jesus. In fact, they can't love one another, or to make it specifically, you can't love one another rightly unless you understand how you've been loved. And when you understand how you've been loved, then the effect is that you wanna share that love with someone else. It's sort of like if you're at a, at a meal with a friend or a spouse, or your kids, and you cut into this amazing piece of meat or chicken, or broccoli, whatever you want, right? I was just thinking how to get everybody in, included here, right? Okay, vegetarians or tofu, whatever you want, okay? So you cut into this, this thing and you take a bite of this and you're like, oh man, that's the best tofu I've ever had. What is your inclination? You, you gotta try this, right? I've used this illustration before. We also do it the other way, right? If you like find something in the back of the refrigerator and you're like, whoa, man, what is that? Something done died in my fridge. You, and it's a, maybe a glass of milk that was sitting in there and you're like, oh, that's awful. What's the next thing we do? Here, smell this. <laughs> it's crazy we do that. Like, yeah, I wanna do that. I'm not smelling that, right? No way. So there's this relentless desire to share. Some of you, if you found gas for $2 a gallon on your way to church, you'd be telling everybody about it. You're so excited. I found this, I found this, I found this. The fact of the matter is, is those who've been loved by Jesus, who've experienced his grace and his mercy are inclined to share that love. So if you find your heart a little on the deficit end of loving other people. Maybe last week was a week where you just didn't do real well with loving other people. You find yourself impatient and not very kind and kind of snarky. What do you do? Well, what you need to do if you're a Christian is you need to look at Jesus and be reminded how you've been loved. And out of the overflow of that love, you're gonna be able to love other people differently. It may be that you're here today and you have really big problems of, in relationships or in your marriage and the problem may very well be that part or the, the central issue or part of the big problem in your life is you don't know how to love somebody else because you don't know what it means to be loved. And so in your life, you've just sort of developed this balance sheet of how you deal with other people. And so you're trying to love and you're trying to make a relationship work and it's not working because you don't even know what real sacrificial love looks like. So Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, John 13, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says this, by this people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why? Because this kind of love is so crazy unusual. It's the idea that people would look at the church and they would see how we relate to one another and would just be like, what in the world? How does that happen that you have people from different walks of life, different genders, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different political perspectives, different socioeconomics, like, like in the midst of a world that has all sorts of uh, little buckets that we put people in, how is it that the church loves each other? And the answer is, well, because of Jesus. So when the church is at its best, the world sits up and goes, how does that work? And when, it's, when the church is at its worst, 
the world looks at the church and goes, you're just like us. So that's why this is so incredibly important because Jesus is talking about a fundamental concept of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now go back to John 15. When Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches, and he says, apart from me, you can do nothing, what comes to mind when you heard that verse? For some of you, you've thought, well, I can do nothing without Jesus, meaning I can't work well without Jesus. Or maybe you thought, I can't deal with anxiety without Jesus, or I can't share my faith without Jesus, or I can't get an answer to prayer without Jesus, and all those things would be true. But what Jesus primarily has in mind, not to the detriment of all of those things, but the thing that he has as the bullseye of what it means apart from me you can do nothing is related to this command in verse 12. That you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus identifies here that the way that we love one another is in reference to how we have been loved. And this is one of the ways that the gospel, this is one of the ways that being a Christian is deeply transformational. It means that when Jesus rescues sinners, he not just rescues, he not only rescues them from their sinfulness, he not only enters the mess of their lives in order to provide a way for them to be forgiven, but he now gives them a taste of what true grace is so that those who have experienced God's grace are gracious to others. They're not gracious just because it's polite. They're not gracious because they want people to be gracious in return. No, they're gracious because God showed his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus purchased our forgiveness by the sacrifice of his life and those who put their trust in him are deeply loved and eternally forgiven and they receive the extravagant grace of God. So then when you deal with a hard person or a difficult, challenging scenario of a relationship, rather than thinking, this is hard, they're reminded, I was hard. Rather than thinking, this is annoying, we think, I am really annoying. Rather than thinking, I'm just given and given and given and given, we're reminded, I'm a taker. I took and I took and I took, and everything that I have is only because of the mercy and grace of Christ. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That, that word friend is super important. We'll come to this in point two. But right now I want you to realize that what Jesus is talking about is the kind of love that looks like self-sacrifice. Of course the disciples at this moment have no idea the extent to which Jesus is going to apply this. They, they're just hearing about these concepts. They don't, they don't have a category in their mind for Jesus dying, let alone dying on a cross. And yet, this kind of self-sacrifice for the sake of others, this loving people as we have been loved, becomes the hallmark of what it means to be a Christian. So take your Bible and go to 1 John. So John not only wrote the Gospel of John, he also wrote three letters or three epistles. 1 John is... Um, 
five chapters, and then we have just two other little letters in 2 John and 3 John. And what I would love to have you do sometime is just read through 1 John, and you will see parallels between 1 John and the Gospel of John. Now take your Bible in 1 John and look at 1 John chapter 4. Because what John is going to suggest, what he's going to argue, is that if you have been loved of God, you must love other people. And he'll suggest that if you don't love people, if you don't love people, then the question is, do you really know what it means to be loved by God? Look at what he says in verse seven, 1 John 4, verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Notice the qualification. If you're born of God and you know God, then you will love. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. I mean, that's really basic. You see, you remind yourself over and over, it's not that, God, not, not that I loved God, he loved me. He loved me first and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So let me just cut it straight. If the characteristic pattern of your life is repeated self-centeredness and you're not concerned for your actions as it relates to other people and you are callous with your words and you don't care what you do and you just live for you, you, you. I don't care what you prayed. I don't care what you say. The Bible says that if love doesn't come from you, you don't know what it means to be loved by God. Does it mean you do it perfectly? No. But if the characteristic pattern of your life consistently is all about you and the whole, the whole part of your life is revolving around this narcissistic pattern of me, 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 the fact of the matter is that you don't know what it means to have Jesus give himself for you. Because those who have tasted of God's goodness express that goodness in how they love other people. This self-sacrificial love is otherworldly. I trust that you know that the broken love paradigm is prevalent in our world. For instance, people love people because it benefits them. People get married for this reason. I want the benefits of marriage. I want to be loved, so I'm gonna love so that I'm loved. And then when they're not loved the way that they wanna be loved, they're like, ah, peace, I'm out because they really didn't get married in order to love someone, they got married in order to be loved. And that's completely backwards to the way that the Bible pictures what true love is, let alone what marriage is, which is one of the reasons, by the way, that Christians are only supposed to marry Christians. Why? Because you're coming at the, the issue of marriage with the same sort of value set, because you're operating two very different paradigms. You can't know how to love unless you know what it means to be loved by Jesus. In our world and culture, maybe you know someone, maybe you're like this, that, man, you're hospitable as long as people are hospitable back. Right? You invite someone over to your house, and you're like, but well, they better be inviting us over. Or we're never inviting them over again. And you have, you know, maybe keep score on your refrigerator, and you put it in your drawer or something like that, but you know, hey, we've invited them six times, and they never invited us over. 
Or maybe you have a friend who does things for other people, but they always expect things in return. To be loved by Christ is to be loved in a way that you could never repay. And that should affect how we think about everything, including generosity. Things like time and money. This is what 1 John chapter 3 says. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He's talking specifically about the church. And then he says this. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. And can you just acknowledge, we have very creative ways to close up our hearts when the needs of others come in front of us. He says, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Here's what John knows. He knows what you know. He knows what I know. And that is human beings are really good at talking a good game, but never actually delivering. We're really good on saying, I love everybody. And then you see someone in need. You're like, man, I hope that works out. I'll pray for you. John says, if you have the goods and you don't meet that need, how does the love of God abide in you? So abiding in Jesus looks like loving one another just like Jesus did, and we share in this love that we have with Jesus. We share that love with others because we are enamored with the love that he has given to us. So how many really hard people in your life do you have? When I say or read or suggest that you are to love one another, my guess is that there's people in your life that's super, super hard to apply to. And I know it's complicated and there's all sorts of challenges and you may have a friend that you just feel like it's a one-way street. Man, I'm just loving them and loving them and loving them, but they're not loving back. Maybe you have the heartache as a parent that that's like what your relationship is with your kids. You're just like, we're always just putting out and they're never coming out. So how do you keep going in that? How do, you, how do you keep responding graciously? How do you not become embittered and become angry and hold them off at a distance? You know how you do that? You do that because you love them the way Jesus loved you. And when you're so heartbroken and tears well up in your eyes, or you lay in bed at night and think, I don't know if I can do this anymore, you're just reminded how much Jesus loved you. And granted, sometimes there's important boundaries and carefulness, I'm not saying that that's not on the table, but what I am saying is that how do you get in the game to love hard people? You get in the game to, hard love, to love hard people because you think of how Jesus loved you. Last weekend, our elders had a great retreat, and one of the things that we're thinking about is how can we love you as a congregation even better? A large church, how to care for you is really important. We have to do, be thoughtful in that. It doesn't happen easily, and the size of the church kind of tends to go the other direction. We also are doing some reading and some thinking about how do we love particular folks who are kind of on the margins, people who are here but they're hurting and maybe no one really even knows. One of those categories is how do we help spouses who are victims of domestic abuse? How do we help them to know that we love them, want to help them and care for them? And to be honest with you, the, the church, this church, we've not always done the best in that area. It's complicated, it's messy. A lot of emotions, but we're trying to say, look, what does it look like to love, to step into a space that's not linear and certainly not easy, but it just seems like we ought to do that because we gotta love one another. But can I also suggest, not just our elders, our pastors, 
But that's all of our responsibility, to step into spaces that are hard because Jesus stepped into the hard spaces in our lives. So we're to love like Jesus. Nothing without Jesus, everything like Jesus. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Jesus moves from an identity concept, I'm the true vine, you're the branches, to now this idea of the disciples being friends. And it's just amazing that he says this. The word friends could also be translated as loved ones. And so back in John 15, Jesus says this, greater love is no one than this, and someone lay down his life for his friends or his loved ones. And then he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now let's talk about that. Because it almost sounds like Jesus is saying, I like the people who do what I want. That's, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is that Jesus, what Jesus is saying here is he's linking who they are, his friends, with obedience. In other words, the commentator put it this way that I found it really helpful. Obedience doesn't make them friends of Jesus. Obedience is what characterizes his friends. So obedience doesn't make them his friends, but when they are his friends, they follow his commands because of who he is. So we're not talking that Jesus is somehow leveling or coming down to their level. He's still the son of God. He's still the king of kings and lord of lords. He's using this term as a matter of affection for them, and he's uniquely linking it to what they know in terms of the Father's will. So Jesus is unfolding the plan of God, and he's told these now 11 disciples, Judas is already gone, all the things that are about to happen. They don't fully understand it. And Jesus is saying to them, because you understand what the Father is doing, I've brought you in, and you understand what my mission is and what the mission of God is. That's why he says next in verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So Jesus is changing how they would think about him and their relationship. Servants are told what to do and they are to obey. If you go to a restaurant and you're not given any silverware, if the waiter or waitress comes up, imagine if you said, hey, I don't have any silverware, and the waiter or waitress said, yeah, I don't, I don't do silverware, I just deliver food. You'd be like, wait a minute, like you're, like this is part of the deal here. Part of being a waiter, part of being a servant in this way is providing what's needed. It's, what Jesus is saying is friends are different. Friends are responsive to the desires of friends because of the relationship. Jesus tells them that he has revealed to them what the Father has revealed to him. And so the disciples understand what Jesus is on earth for. Now they don't understand the full orbed plan of God. They don't know about the crucifixion. They're hearing things about Jesus' self-sacrifice. Eventually it will all come together. And when that all comes together for them, they will transform the world. He calls them friends because of their participation in the mission of God. All that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Later on, they will hear this command from Jesus, go into the uttermost parts of the earth. And they'll be compelled to do that because they know him, and because they love him, and because they understand the plan. So just 
understand how remarkable it is that Jesus calls these men his friends. Believers are friends, they're loved ones of Jesus. Just think of this, Jesus set his love on you and that's why he rescued you. He didn't rescue you because of the good you brought to the table. He didn't look at all humanity and be like, hey, that guy, like, he's got some stuff, let's bring him in. Instead, how it works is God looks at you and it goes like this, that guy's got some stuff. We better bring him in. Because what we bring are liabilities. We don't bring assets. The other thing that's noteworthy here is that Jesus chooses to use this word friend. It's so interesting to me that he does this, and it emphasizes the fact that the disciples had this unique relationship with Jesus, and Jesus is valuing this common mission, common love relationship. And I just want to ask you, do you have anybody in your life like that? A fellow Christian who knows you, who loves you, who could speak the truth of God to you, who you could call at three in the morning and saying, I messed up, I need help. Would you pray for me? Or would say, can you come and get me? Somebody who can challenge your thinking, somebody who understands kind of the trajectory of your life, the trajectory of the scriptures, somebody who knows what it's like to walk with Jesus and can walk alongside you. The church was designed to be a place where friends gather. Doesn't mean you're friends with everybody, but it means that somebody who's a follower of Jesus knows you and knows you well. Some of you may, after the service, need to go to someone and just say, I wanna thank you for being my friend. Like, I praise God for you. Because the world is hard, the devil is at work, and we need loved ones near us in order to help us in this journey of everything looking like Jesus. Now the final thing that Jesus says, it's rather interesting, in verse 16, it's almost as if Jesus would be concerned that these disciples, having heard that they're the friends of Jesus, having heard that Jesus has revealed to them things from the Father, might somehow get swollen chests as they think about how awesome they are. So Jesus reminds them, you did not choose me, but I chose you. These disciples, can you imagine, Jesus just keeps moving them from one thought to another to another. And they're like, we're the friends of Jesus, but you didn't choose me. Oh yeah, 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 is he over here? Back and forth and back and forth. Jesus is constantly trying to help disciple them. He says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So the idea is that these disciples, now they, they followed Jesus. Jesus said to them, follow me. They decided to follow Jesus. But you need to know that their decision to follow Jesus wasn't the first move in the chess game of God. Jesus went after them. He pursued them. And in his pursuing of them, then they could follow him. But if he would have never pursued them, they would have never followed him. By the way, the same is true if you're a Christian. All the circumstances of your life, the things that happened... The way that you heard the gospel, the pain that awakened your heart, the fact that the gospel, God's holy, I'm not, Jesus saved, Christ is my life, suddenly, boom, blasted into your mind and heart, and you're like, that's true when you receive Christ. That didn't happen on your own. God was pursuing you way before you were pursuing him. But to what end? In order, he says, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So the idea is that these disciples are loved. They understand the mission. Jesus chose them in order for them to go from there 
in order to reach people who did not yet know them. To know him, rather. So the idea is that those who are loved go and seek those who yet do not know that they're loved. So they're to go. When he says their fruit will abide, he means those who will be converted after them. So here's how this works. It is that Jesus' disciples gather, they love one another, they focus on who Jesus is, they're reminded all of his, about all of his grace, and then they are sent out on mission to find other people who are outside the walls in order to bring them in. The disciples of Jesus never become content to stay inside the walls. They're always thinking about people outside of the camp, people who need to be brought in because they were once outside. And it's really tempting for outsiders who become insiders to be content with insider living. Strange. When you first come to Christ, you're all jazzed about evangelism, but then over time, you become comfortable with Christian ghetto experience, and you kind of live in this little uh, arena, and you're not interested in going to reach people anymore. And Jesus' disciples love one another so they can go out and find those who need to hear of his love. He says, so whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The idea is these disciples are to pray as they go and live on mission. And then he concludes, strange, verse 17, he just kind of throws this back in because this was the main point. These things I command you so that you will love one another. In other words, this idea, this like love that's like the engine of the church, loving one another, loving Jesus, then compels us to go out and talk with people about the king that we love and the people we love. You shouldn't have to force yourself to talk about Jesus. You shouldn't have to force yourself to talk about your church. People pick up on that really quickly. They, they, they pick up if you're sharing the gospel out of obligation. Well, I really don't want to tell you this, but um, you could be forgiven. I mean, I'm sorry to tell you that. You know, it's a little embarrassing. People want to hear the most glorious message in the world, and they want to know it from somebody who really experiences it in all of its glory. So what do we do with this? A couple things. Number one, friend, if you're here today and not giving your life to Christ, if you're not yet a Christian, why not today? You've seen examples of this in baptism. You've heard, what it, six, seven stories of people who were gloriously converted. Imagine yourself up there getting baptized the next time we have baptism. Why not become a Christian today? Why not confess your sins and acknowledge your need of a Savior and realize that you don't know what it is to love until you've been loved by Jesus? And part of the barrier that keep, you keep running into in so many areas of life may be that you're trying to do everything without Jesus and there's no way that you're living like Jesus because you don't know Jesus. And it may be that what I'm saying to you for the first time is like, I actually think I might believe that. And that's what happened to all of us who became Christians. <laughs> One day we were like, that's true. And God rescued us. Secondly, to those of you who are Christians, can I encourage you just to not overcomplicate the Christian life? It's as simple as living out the gospel by loving other people. Can I just remind you today, Jesus loves you, he died for you, and out of the well of that beautiful story, we are called to love one another. So with the people that are hard to love in your life, where do you go to to help yourself, by God's grace, to keep loving them? You don't go to the well of, well, maybe they'll change. Or maybe this time it'll get better. I hope it does. But where you go to is the fact that you have been loved even in your own messiness. And then finally, can I just encourage us to make Sundays a place where people feel loved? 
Staff and elders are working toward that end, but we're not sufficient to be able to catch everyone and love everyone. We need your help. As you make your way out this morning, there may be somebody who you just need to stop for a few moments and just say, you know, I, I haven't told you in a long time. I really am thankful for you. Maybe somebody in the margins that you just need to find out, hey, what's going on? Can I pray for you? Maybe someone you're sitting next to just to say, hey, I don't, I don't know you. What's your story? Can we make Sundays a place where love just exudes from the context and the confines of this church? Because Jesus calls disciples to abide in him, and that means nothing without Jesus and everything like Jesus. It means that the singular, the singular mark of what it means to be a follower of his is that we love one another as Christ has loved us. We love one another because Jesus loved us. That's what it means to be a Christian. So basic. It's something all of us need to grow in. Let's pray together. Lord, you know the condition of every person hearing this message today. We pray that you might even today draw someone to yourself who might become a follower of yours, that today just clicked. We pray, Lord, for Christians to emulate the love of Christ in hard places with hard kids and hard employees, hard employers, hard coworkers, hard neighbors, hard spouses, hard roommates. Lord, help us to know how to apply this love, especially in the context of the body of Christ. So help us, Lord, we need your grace, and we're so thankful that we have this example in the person and work of you, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen and amen.